Turn with me in your Bibles, please, today to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. Have you ever known someone whose actions are not in line with the position that they hold? Perhaps you have listened to the news or uh, been reading online or read the newspaper or however you get your news and heard about a politician or a CEO who, though their title commands respect and honor, their actions inspire the exact opposite. Perhaps you've heard of the CEO of some very large company a man who is a role model in the business world, a man who uh, is powerful, who is wealthy, uh, who has done some great things for society, and yet uh, he's caught, perhaps stealing from his company, or insider trading, or whatever the case may be. And as you hear these things on the news, it's mentioned that though he is a man that uh, has a great position of honor, he's not living up to that in his actions. Perhaps you've even experienced this in your own life or in the lives of your children. Perhaps you have gone someplace and your children have acted in a way that does not become their family name. You know, my daughters are very small and at this point I would never uh, credit anything like that to them. However, I fully anticipate there's coming a day where one of my daughters will do something that does not become the Wickler name. That though they are Wicklers, and they'll always be Wicklers in a manner of speaking, and when they get married their name will change, but they'll always be that blood relation, their actions are not reflecting their upbringing. Their actions are not reflecting that which their parents have instilled into them, that which their parents would desire for them to reflect in their own lives. You know, the same can be true for us as believers in Jesus Christ as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ is as clear as it is simple. We're all sinners by birth and by action. Our sins have made us, brought us to a place where we recognize our unrighteousness and has caused us to fall short of God's glory and God's holy demands. God cannot abide sin. And therefore, because of the sin that it is in our lives, both by birth and by willful rebellion, we are condemned to eternity in the lake of fire as a just punishment for our sin. But God so loved the world, the Bible says in John 3.16, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, though we are sinners by birth and by choice, though we have gone down this road, though God must in His justice punish us for our sin, though that punishment is eternity in the lake of fire. Yet God made a way, not through good works, not through vain religion, not through keeping the sacraments or church attendance or getting baptized, but through belief on the name of Jesus Christ. As the book of Acts puts it, repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. So that any man who, having recognized his unrighteousness, having seen and understood his inability to get himself to heaven, may accept by faith the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross, accept by faith that God sent his only begotten Son, 
to die on the cross for your sins, that he bore your sins on the cross, that he paid the penalty, that he rose again the third day in victory over the grave, that Jesus Christ is alive today, that he sits on the right hand of God, that he paid your debt, and thus, by humbling yourself, you can become a child of God. You say, well, pastor, how did your illustration at the beginning bring us to the gospel? Well, it brings us to the gospel because the gospel is what makes us, as I just mentioned, a child of God. And let me just emphasize that statement. You, if you are a born-again believer in this room, are a child of God. As with any position, the family of God comes with both responsibilities and privileges. And just like the politician or the CEO or the child who does not conduct himself in a way that properly reflects his position, so too we as children of God can live in a way that does not properly reflect the position that we have in Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul calls this manner of living carnality. It's derived from that word carnal, which speaks of that which is physical, like our physical bodies, that which is fleshly, that which is um, on this earth. Now by this, Paul is describing the Christian who, though he has been saved from sin, is still allowing his sin to direct and to control his life, his thoughts, or his actions. In this, our first expositional message in the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like us to take a careful look at the possibility of a person being a believer, but not behaving like a believer. The possibility of being a believer, but not living the life that is expected of a believer. And as we do this, I'd like us to do so for a particular reason this morning. <coughs> there are many people under the sound of my voice who are from many different backgrounds. Some of you have had very legalistic backgrounds. Those of you that would have had these very legalistic backgrounds might have heard before that if you have sin in your life or particular sins in your life, or if you struggle with sin in your life, then you are not saved and you need to get saved. And perhaps you've been there and you've tried this and, and the sin is still there and you've been struggling because you feel as though you might not even be able to get saved because you want to, but you simply can't get rid of sin in your life. Others might have come from somewhat liberal settings. And if you have come from one of these settings, then you've heard that there is no expectation in the believer at all, or, or maybe even not a liberal setting. Maybe we could just call it an easy believism setting. Some conservatives have this idea as well that regardless of what you do in your life, regardless of the fruit of your life, regardless of what your life looks like on the outside, uh, it, it, it's all about that prayer. Or it's all about that belief. And so as long as at some point in your life you believed, you're okay. Well... This morning, I don't want to give anyone false assurances whereby you think you're saved even though you are not, but I also don't want to give you false fears whereby you think you're not saved when you are. That's between you and God. Only you can know your heart before God. Only you can know if you have ever taken that step of truly accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ, whereby, whereby you have humbled yourself before God and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be saved from your sins. 
But this series, and particularly our message today, will help us in this manner. 1 John 2 verse 3 tells us, And hereby do we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. There are two types of people under the sound of my voice today, and I'm going to lot you into four different categories. There are those who are unsaved, and you know it. You know that you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You're playing the part, you're coming because you have to, or because you feel guilty, or because it's tradition, or whatever the case may be, but you know. You know that you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You know that you're just playing the game. There are also those under the sound of my voice today who are unsaved, and as it were, you don't know it. You are trusting in your good works, or in some baptism, or in some experience, or in your family relations, or your knowledge of the Bible, your church attendance, and so you think you're saved. But as we think about what I had just mentioned, as we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have never taken that step of humbling yourself before God and accepting the work of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. There are those in this room who are saved but are in co constantly in doubt. You have accepted Christ, but you're living a life that is full of sin. You're carnal. And so, though you are a believer, you are not seeing the fruit of that belief, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, because you do not keep God's commandments. Therefore, you're quenching the Spirit. Therefore, you are grieving the Spirit. And so, the fruit of the Spirit is not manifest in your life. And the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible tells us, is the divine indicator, the divine assurance to us that we indeed are among God's children. As I just read in 1 John 2, verse 3, And hereby do we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. See, the keeping of God's commandments, the fruit of the Spirit being born in our lives, that love, that joy, that peace, that long-suffering, that meekness, that gentleness, the temperance, the goodness, the faith, all of those elements of our lives, that is what reminds us, that is what assures us, that is what comforts us and shows us that we are indeed members of the family of God. The fourth and final group here, under the sound of my voice, are those who are saved and you know it. You have your ups and downs. There's still sin. You still sin in your life. There is still sin in your life. No man is free from sin until he's free from this body. However, as you live day in and day out, you regularly confess your sin. You regularly remember the promises of God, whereby God said that no man can pluck you out of his hand. You understand the gospel, that it's a one-time thing, that salvation is a one-time act, that justification is by grace through faith. You know it. And as you live this life and you keep a short sin account with God, there is indeed fruit being born out of your life. That reminds you that you are indeed a child of God. You are secure in that understanding. The book of 1 Corinthians was written to believers, those who had accepted Christ as their Savior. Now, if you're an unbeliever under the sound of my voice today, you have just heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you will accept this gospel by faith, God will save your soul and usher you into the family of God. If you are a believer in this room, then Paul has some things to say to you in this book. And what he has to say is applicable to you. Regardless of 
whether you are a carnal believer or you are a, a spiritual believer, the elements of this book apply to you. The things we will cover, the sins and carnality, if they're not in your life, they're possible for your life. And so we must guard ourselves. We must warn ourselves. We must be careful. And we must be sure that we're walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So our focus today will be on this topic. That it is entirely possible to be born again through the Spirit of God, but live a life separate from the power of God and the power of the Spirit of Christ. When we do so, we're living in carnality, and it's a miserable place to live. And so this morning, let's look at two lessons. Two lessons regarding the possibility of carnality in the life of a believer from 1 Corinthians 1, particularly verses 1 through 8, but we'll, we'll look at verses 1 through 17. First lesson we're going to learn this morning is this. Your position can be different from your disposition. Your position can be different from your disposition. Paul begins his epistle as he often does. He states his authority, that he is an apostle, and he is called to be an apostle by the authority of Jesus Christ. Apostolic authority was not granted by a council, nor was it granted by a church. It was a calling of God given to a very select group of men. We know from the scriptures that the eleven, the eleven disciples, uh, excluding Judas Iscariot, who killed himself, the eleven were chosen to be Christ's apostles. We know from the book of Acts that the twelfth was a man named Matthias, who was chosen by Christ through the casting of lots and through prayer. We know that Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He was chosen by Christ on the road to Damascus. And there's debate over whether Barnabas was an apostle. Acts 14.14 14 calls him an apostle. It speaks of Paul and Barnabas, and it, it calls them apostles. We know that Paul and Barnabas were called out by the Holy Ghost in Acts 13.2 for the ministry to the Gentiles, so it is possible, I suppose, that Barnabas himself was indeed an apostle as well. However, he was one of this very select group who met very specific qualifications, who were called out by God himself, we see nowhere in the scriptures the idea of conferring apostolic authority one upon another or passing of apostolic authority from man to man or from church to man. It was an appointment by Christ himself. It was ratified and verified by the power of God upon these men. It was expected that there were certain qualifications. We've talked about that in other messages. And on the authority of the scriptures today, I can boldly tell you that apostolic authority is not valid today. There are no more apostles today in the sense that we see the apostles of the New Testament. He addresses this epistle, Paul does, to a specific group of people. Notice verse 2. Let's begin in verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes our brother, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of, of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. He addresses this epistle to the church of God. The word is ecclesia, 
which was a general term meaning a called-out assembly. But it wasn't just an assembly. It was the church which was of God. In the Greek, this is a phrase that indicates possession. Paul is writing to a called-out assembly that is literally possessed by God. It is God's called-out assembly. And if that were not enough, if it were not enough to specify who Paul is writing to by calling them the church of God, uh, he continues here. He clarifies that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that word in the Greek meaning set apart or dedicated. We would often use the term that they are in Christ. The scriptures speak of us being, at the moment of our salvation, placed into Christ and then sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, so that we are in Christ and our seal is the Holy Spirit. And since we cannot lose the Spirit of God which has been given to us, which is the seal of our placement into Christ, we cannot get out of Christ. We're sanctified in Christ Jesus. He also speaks of these as being called saints. This is the same word here whereby Paul described himself as being called to, to be an apostle. These to whom he writes have been called out of the world by God to be saints, set apart unto God, a very select, a very special group of people. And just so Paul is clear as to his audience, he takes special note to mention that this epistle is not simply addressed to this church, but to every saint in all places who call upon Jesus Christ and who call him Lord. That means this epistle is for you, if you, under the sound of my voice today, are indeed in Christ. Positionally, then, we know exactly where these readers stand, and I use that word positionally carefully. Paul states, look with me in verses 8 and 9, He's speaking of these men and women, and he says, Who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Like every believer through the ages, the blood of Jesus Christ has covered these, the sins of these men and women whom Paul is addressing. They are redeemed. And positionally, they stand before God unblameable and unreprovable. Say, Pastor, what do you mean positionally? This is what I mean. We in this life, if we are born again believers, have been saved from our sin. It is not necessarily spoken of in the scriptures in the future tense. It is spoken of in the, actually it's spoken of in the perfect tense. That which is completed, we are saved from our sins. But the scriptures do also speak of our salvation in the future tense. Take a look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Peter's writing, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we are begotten. We are born into a, a lively and active, a real hope, an earnest expectation of something. What is it that we hope for? Verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed when? In the last time. And he would go on to speak of in verse 9, that we will receive the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. So while in reality, 
the salvation of our souls is the end of our faith, while in reality we are awaiting that inheritance, we are awaiting the, the, the final triumph of God and therefore our salvation that is to come, it's spoken of in the scriptures as being effective right now. And what we understand from the study of scriptures is that right now we are saved from the power of sin. The scriptures also tell us that we are saved from the penalty of sin. And so we're not on our way to hell, which is the penalty of sin. And we are not constrained to obey our flesh. We are not constrained to the power of sin. However, we know full well that we are still in the presence of sin. That until the day that we leave this earth, our bodies will be affected by sin. Not only will we get sick and grow old and have blemishes, but we're surrounded by sin and sinners. We will disobey God. We will lie. We will cheat. We will steal. And this world around us is sinful. There will be sinful men. There will be wars. There will be anger. There will be bitterness. There will be deceit because we are not free yet from the presence of sin. But the scriptures speak of a day when we will be, the day when our salvation will be complete, when we'll not just be saved from the power of sin, not just be saved from the penalty of sin, but when we will indeed as well be saved from the presence of sin. And so our salvation, in a manner of speaking, is yet to come, and yet, as the scriptures speak to us of our salvation, it assures us that it, it is so sure to happen that we can call ourselves saved today knowing that there is absolutely no possibility that if we are in Christ, we will not be saved. And so though our salvation is yet to come, we can count ourselves as saved today. That means that we are positionally righteous. We are positionally justified. That though it's all eventually going to happen, and it hasn't personally, specifically happened yet, it will happen one day, and it's as good as happened already. And this church at Corinth, Paul speaks of as being men and women who will one day be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, who are in Christ. But you know, just because these believers are positionally pure, they are positionally blameless, positionally righteous, This by no means implies that they were practically pure. That on a day-to-day -day basis, they were living lives of purity and righteousness and blamelessness. See, because right after Paul calls them blameless, notice what he says in verses 10 and 11. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Here we see the tip of a very big iceberg that we will explore throughout the epistle of 1 Corinthians. Paul tells these men and women that even though they will one day stand before God perfected in the blood of Jesus Christ, their lifestyle, their disposition, if you will, from our outline, toward God today is anything but perfect, anything but pure. Much rather, Paul says there was division among them. We'll look at this more next week. But the word division is the word schisma in the Greek. It's the word from which we get our word schism. It's also the word from which we get the term schizophrenia. 
Schizo, schisma, meaning that word divided or split. Phrenia comes from the Greek word phreneo, which means to think. Split or divided thinking. In a manner of speaking, he's telling this church that they're a schizophrenic church, that they are the body of Christ, but they're not thinking the same. They have, they have divided minds. They're not on the same page one with another. The hand isn't doing what the mind says. The foot is doing something different from the hand. Everyone is working their own way. They're schizophrenic. And here these believers stood in Christ, born again, heaven bound, and absolutely divided amongst themselves. And Paul states that this is wrong. Much rather, he stated in verse 10, that they need to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Believers, under the sound of my voice today, you too are positionally perfected. You too, if you are a believer, will one day stand before God, and as Colossians 1.22 describes, you will be unblameable and unreprovable in His sight through Christ. But Paul is stating here that we are expected by God to be on this earth what we will be in heaven one day. That whereas one day we will be seen as unblameable, we should seek through the power of Christ and the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives to live lives that are unblameable in this life as well. That whereas one day we will be clothed with the mind of Christ, we should seek through Christ to put on the mind of Christ as we live this life as well. That we ought not be men and women driven by the flesh when we are children of God through the Spirit. But, though that's what we should be, what we see is that our position can be very different from our disposition. Can it not? Second, today from the text, your knowledge can be very different from your actions. Not only can your position be very different from your disposition, your knowledge can be very different from your actions. Look back with me in verse 4, where Paul states that he thanks God for the grace which is given unto them. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And then he says, Look at verse 7. So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word grace is often confused with the idea of mercy in Christians' minds. Mercy is defined as not being given what I deserve. Grace is defined as being given that which I do not deserve. So while we would indeed consider salvation to be a grace, something that we're given that we do not deserve, Paul also uses this word grace to describe those talents, those gifts, and those abilities that those in the church have been given for the sake of better ministry. For example, Paul would call Courtney's piano playing ability a grace, a grace that has been given to her, a gift given to her so that she can serve the Lord. Or Brady's piano playing and his music leading, or my teaching these are abilities, that graces that God has given to us in order that we might serve the church better. And they're given by Jesus Christ, Paul says. Now, there are two specific graces that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians. Now, we're not speaking of spiritual gifts here. That's not yet. As he goes on in verses uh, um, 
7, 6, 7, and 8, he's speaking of some of those gifts, those spiritual gifts. Uh, but in, in verse 5, he's speaking of graces, those elements of life and of talent and of ability that God has given various people. And the two specific graces Paul lists here are all utterance and all knowledge. And Paul states that they were enriched by these gifts, that word in the Greek literally meaning being made wealthy, that these graces have been given to this church in abundance. Let's look at them a bit closer. All utterance. It's a very common Greek word. Perhaps you know it. It's the word logos, the word that is translated word. It can mean written word, but quite generally it means that which is spoken or expressed. What Paul is saying here is that these people had been given the grace, the ability by God to put words together well, to articulate thoughts and concepts well. They've been given all utterance. He also says that they have been given all knowledge. This is another common Greek word, gnosis. It's simply the word that means wisdom or knowledge, uh, that, that lots of stuff was in their heads, that they were able thinkers, that they not only had it in their heads, but they were able to get it out of their mouths. Have you ever known somebody who had a lot in their head but couldn't express it well? Or known somebody who could say a lot of really good things, but it's as if they never really got around to saying anything useful or worthy? I had a teacher in college. He was one of my computer science teachers. And there was no doubt that he knew his stuff. This man knew more about computers than most people uh, I know today, uh, than most people I've ever met. And yet, for all of that ability as a teacher, he had a very poor ability to take what was in his head and express it. And so we'd be in his class, sitting there listening and during a computer science class. And he'd be talking the entire 50 minutes. And he'd be writing things and typing things and showing things and expressing things. And we'd all be furiously flipping pages and writing notes and trying to follow along. And at the end of the class, I could honestly sit there sometimes and say, I have absolutely no idea what he said the entire class. And yet, if there was one thing I knew at the end of the class, what I knew was that he really knew his stuff. I also knew that he had no concept of how to teach, how to teach others to know their stuff as well. He had a lot of knowledge, but he couldn't express it. There are a lot of politicians out there that have a lot of ability to express things, but not a lot to express in their minds. They'll say things, and every once in a while you'll realize how little is going on in their head because they'll say something and it'll be picked up by the media and it'll be completely wrong or completely confused or completely inaccurate or whatever the case may be. And you'll realize that though this pe person has the ability to say things in a way that sounds good, he or she absolutely has nothing in their head that, to back up their ability to speak. Well, these people had it all. They not only had it in their minds, but they could get it out of their mouths. And this should not surprise us when we think about Corinth. Corinth was the heart of the former Greek Empire, a place of tremendous learning and of academic knowledge, a place of philosophy, a place that sought knowledge for knowledge's sake. And these Corinthians had it. They could articulate doctrine. They could reason with the best of them. They could sound really smart. They were really smart. But you know, this academic adeptness that they had had some, uh, had some accompanying difficulties, let's say. Look with me in verse 11. 
For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. And he continues. These men and women had begun to place their own ideas above God's ideas and thus had begun to divide themselves into intellectual factions. Each attributed their devotion to a different man, some to Paul, some to Apollos, some to Cephas, who is Peter, and some to Jesus Christ. And in doing so, they divided themselves among false lines of separation and there was great contention in the church. Now, these lines of separation, we can probably guess as to what they were. We can probably guess that those who said that they were of Paul, knowing from the book of Acts and then from um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that Paul said when he came, he didn't come with wisdom of words, but in the power of the Spirit of God with many signs and wonders. And knowing that, we can probably assume that the ones who followed Paul and the ones who said, I am of Paul, were those that had charismatic gifts and those who were exercising those charismatic gifts regularly. And then there were those that said, I am of Apollos. Well, we know from the book of Acts that Apollos was a man who was mighty in word. That he was from the, the, the city of Alexandria, the very center of learning in the Roman Empire. That he was a man who could express himself so well that when he spoke, he had the ability to convince men and women of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that others could not convince because of his utterance, because of his eloquence, because of his knowledge. And so most likely those who were of great eloquence in the church aligned themselves with Paulus. I'm of Paul, said the charismatics. I'm of Apollos, said the intellectuals. Then perhaps there were some in the church that had, we might call them Jewish sympathies. There were those who desired perhaps to keep many of the Jewish feasts, to align themselves with Jewish expectations in the Old Testament law. Maybe some of them were legalistic, maybe some of them were not, and some of them were balanced and simply desired to reflect Jewish culture in their worship. Whatever the case may be, most likely those were the ones that were of Cephas, of Peter. And notice they use specifically his Hebrew name, I am of Cephas, not I am of Petrus. The Greek, his Greek name, it was Cephas, his Hebrew name. So they had some loyalty to Israel, to the Hebrews to the Jews, in that respect. And then there were some that said, I'm of Jesus Christ. Now, these may have been off in some manner or form. We know that they were, they were divisive as well, so we know that they were indeed carnal. But these also may very well have simply been the ones that said, look, folks, this is ridiculous. Your faith doesn't rest on Paul or Paulus or Cephas. Your faith rests on Christ. I'm with Christ on this one. Maybe there were those who were balanced in the church. Maybe not. We don't know. But we can get the general gist of who uh, took what lines of, of loyalty among themselves. And there was great contention in this church. Next time we will dig deeper into the problem of division itself that Paul is describing. But it's important for us to have this foundational understanding of the relationship between our salvation and our sanctification our position in Christ, and our action upon this earth. See, it's not simply enough for you, under the sound of my voice today, to know about the Bible. It's not sufficient enough for you to have an opinion on every standard, or every philosophy, or every doctrine. 
It's not enough for you to spend time memorizing the Bible and learning the, the various elements, the, the Ten Commandments, so that you can say them offhand and, and learning the Hebrew feast days as we've been doing in Sunday school and learning all of these things. It's not enough. It's not enough for us to simply have uh, an understanding that we're on our way to heaven and so not to concern ourselves with our manner of living or with fellowship among the brethren or with the unity of the saints. We cannot suffice ourselves with our knowledge. We cannot suffice ourselves with our loyalties. Look, it's not enough for you simply to, to, to feel like you're okay because of who you listen to or because of who you read or because you're a part of this convention or this denomination or because Pastor Wickler is your pastor. That's not enough. Knowledge of the Word of God, our position and our knowledge are not sufficient to make up for a lack of living for God the way He has called us to live. And so we consider this morning that your position can be very different from your disposition. Your knowledge can be very different from your actions. And perhaps even in this foundational message, God's Holy Spirit has convicted your heart of some element of your life that has been imbalanced or sin in your life. Perhaps you're an unbeliever who has been playing the game or refused to play the game and simply says, I'm not a believer. But today you know you need to be saved. May I encourage you to make that decision today? Would you call upon the name of the Lord to be saved? Would you see me after the service so that I can show you how you can understand better how to be saved? You are not guaranteed another moment, much less another day, or another week, or another month. Would you get it taken care of today? Or perhaps you are a believer in this room, and you've been playing the game as well. You talk the talk, but your heart is far from God. You have a position, but you don't live like you have a position in Christ. You have the knowledge of the Bible, but you don't act like it. It's all in your head, but it doesn't get out. It doesn't get out in your life. The movies on your shelf aren't indicative of what you know about the Bible. The places you go on the internet are not indicative of what you have, uh, what you know in the Bible. The things you wear are not indicative of what you know in the Bible. The music you listen to is not indicative of what you know in the Bible. If the Holy Spirit has convicted your heart today, will you start this series by getting on the right foot with God? Will you repent of those sins? Will you get right with God and allow God to build upon the foundation of your knowledge, faithfulness, and godliness? And you know, perhaps you're a believer in this room who has been patiently, faithfully walking with the Lord. May Paul's words serve as a warning to you, knowing that even the greatest among us can fall into carnality and division if we are not regularly and purposefully putting on the mind of Christ and walking in the Spirit. Let's pray.